This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of The Joy Challenge. Discover the ancient secret to experiencing worry-defeating, circumstance-defying happiness. Written by pastor and best-selling author Randy Frazee and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Hello, this is the Russell Moore Podcast, and this is him. And today we're taking up one of our questions and ethics uh, questions sent in by you. And if, uh, if you haven't uh, participated with one of these before, it's where I take one of the moral or ethical dilemmas that you're facing and help you to, to think through it. And remember, if you have a question about something you're facing in your workplace, your family, your church, your relationships, whatever, send it to me at questions at russellmore.com. And it would be great. What I'm going to start doing is if you're comfortable with this, uh, record your question on your iPhone or whatever it is that you use and send that to me along as an attachment and we'll use it here. Obviously, if you don't want your voice uh, used, then you can just send it to me uh, in text. And I will always use a different name uh, unless you tell me, use my name, then I will. So I've got a question here today from Homer. Again, I'm I'm making up the name and I'm thinking Odyssey, not Homer Simpson uh, for this one. But Homer writes in with a a really detailed uh, story about a mentor and a public figure. I don't know who this is, but who has become combative. And it sounds like, from what Homer is saying, um, really combative online. Uh, that's that's usually where this takes place. And this person has changed his approach from unity to tearing down others in apparently some really vicious kinds of ways. And that Homer and some others have talked to this person, um, even though they agree with his goals, they don't agree with the way he's going about it. And the person has been at best dismissive and is at worst almost hostile. And so Homer's question is not really about this person and and what, what the person should do, but what Homer should do. And he says this, do I have any reason to speak publicly against what this person is doing or just carry out my own ministry. That's the first part. Second part is, if this person takes me on personally, and given how this person has attacked others with similar views to mine, what steps are biblical for defending yourself? Okay, well, let me say, first of all, Homer, it sounds like you followed the right steps in terms of caring about this person as a person uh, and and as a, a Christian. And it sounds like you're not getting anywhere with that. So, Think about, I'm not saying that this text uh, directly has anything to do with this person or with you, but I think there's a principle in it that does. So in Titus 3.10, the Apostle Paul writes, as for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. Now, uh, when you hear that, uh, I think there's a tendency for us to think, well, this is punitive. It's sort of a, I'm done with you, uh, get, get away from me. The sort of thing that we see uh, all the time in terms of these social media sorts of uh, spats where, where someone will just say, I'm done, I'm blocking you, I'm, I'm finished with you. Or people who maybe have been friends for a long time who just say, I'm, I'm not speaking to you anymore as a way to punish you. That's not what this text is about. I mean, first of all, this text is about people who are uh, coming in and doing this within the context of a church uh, where there's church community and, and church authority. 
uh, but also because if you notice what the text is talking about, the, the person is warped and sinful. It, it sounds like this is a, sort of a way of categorizing this person and, and labeling this person. But notice what Paul says, he's self-condemned or she's self-condemned, not you condemned. I mean, I, I think the, the point of this is to say, uh, you do not have a responsibility to condemn the person. What you have a responsibility to do is to protect uh, the church and to protect the, the people who might be harmed by this person. And implied in this, I think, is to protect yourself from becoming like the person. Because there, there's a way in which being in uh, constant or even prolonged sort of conflict with a person who loves conflict um, can turn you into that very sort of person yourself. And so there's a reason why Jesus, for instance, will say uh, to his disciples, when someone doesn't receive you, then shake the dust off your sandals and move to the next town. And this is included in all three synoptic gospels where Jesus says this. Well, why? Well, partly it's because Jesus is making it very clear his mission is to preach the gospel of the kingdom in the other towns. So he's not going to be sort of diverted into a morass by uh, the, the sort of lack of reception and um, and conflict that's going on in a place that doesn't receive the message. In, in the same way that the Apostle Paul will say, uh, I'm taking leave of you, where he's being rejected, I'm going to the nations, I, I'm off to the Gentiles. So it's not about, uh, I want to issue a condemnation on you. Now, Jesus makes that very clear when he says, it, it will be better for Sodom and Gomorrah in that day than will for them. That's a way of saying, you don't have a responsibility to condemn. God is judge. And so if we have a sense of God as being judge and that there actually is judgment day accountability, that if we understand that right, it ought not to cause us to become more judgmental, but less because we're able to say, okay, I know this is going to be dealt with. So I don't have to be the one to deal with it right now. Otherwise, what you end up with is to become sort of like James and John, who, when they're being uh, rejected in uh, in Samaria, who say to Jesus, "Let's call down fire from heaven and and, and destroy them." Jesus rebukes that. That's not the that's not the spirit uh, with which he is coming. Instead, Jesus is uh, relatively calm about this sort of thing. Whoever is not against us is for us. So. Uh, I think that you you don't have a responsibility to call this person out any more than you do with, say, your mom or your dad or your Aunt Sadie or whoever is uh, saying things or doing things in a way that you wouldn't do them, saying things that you wouldn't agree with. Unless, unless you think that most reasonable people, and, and I'm using that those all of those qualifiers, unless you think that most reasonable people would be confused into assuming that you are empowering or endorsing whatever malignant stuff is going on in, in that ministry. So sort of like with the Apostle Paul, when he is uh, warning, for instance, in the epistles, he'll, he'll sometimes warn against uh, specific people by name. 
Alexander the coppersmith and, and people like that. But why does he do that? It's, it's not because he's wanting to uh, justify himself or defend himself. It's a warning uh, toward others. And uh, Paul will often come in and engage with specific critiques of people, not exhaustively, but only when it's going to be a point of confusion. So for instance, in the letter to the Romans, when uh, the the critics of Paul are suggesting that what his gospel is saying is, uh, let us do evil uh, in order that good may come. They have to come in and say, no, the the condemnation of those people's just. Uh, I'm not saying that. And then he uh, he elaborates what he's saying. Well, why? Not because he's wanting to defend himself, but because he's wanting to make sure that people are clearly understanding what the gospel is that he's teaching. Now, they may reject it. They may receive it. But if they reject it, he wants them to reject the actual gospel, wants them to hear what it is that he's really saying, not some caricature of it. So I don't think you have a responsibility except in those very, very limited uh, circumstances. And in most cases, simply carrying out your ministry the way that God has given you to, to do, uh, rather than saying, here's where this person is wrong. And here, that usually makes it clear enough as to what it is, at least long-term in, in terms of, of what you're doing. Now, obviously, it sounds like from what you're talking about here, you're just talking about somebody who's um, combative and vicious in terms of the way that they respond to other people. Doesn't sound like you're talking about some sort of a uh, an abusive sort of situation. If that's the case, then yes, you do have a responsibility to, to call that out. If you know about uh, theft or abuse or something else that's going on, sounds like what you're talking about, though, is just the sort of cantankerous, combative, uh, soul-rotting sort of craving for controversy that we sometimes see. Uh, If that's the case, I think for the most part, just carry out your ministry. But the second part that Homer asks is, uh, well, what if this person attacks him? Uh, And he says he has reason to think that that might happen. What does he do then? Well, what I would say, first of all, is I've been there and I can tell you that's going to be difficult. And the reason it's going to be difficult is because it's it's going to feel like rejection. And depending upon how close you are or were to this person, sometimes it can feel almost like rejection by a mom or a dad. You know, even if you rationally know that that's not the case, sometimes your, your subconscious can't know that. And so I would say just note that, recognize that, and realize that sometimes that's going to provoke a lot more anger than maybe what you're used to. And sometimes it can even be a subterranean sort of anger that shows up in other ways, especially if you're kind of accustomed to showing deference to authority. Uh, you, you, you wouldn't ordinarily express anger toward parents or parental figures. So sometimes it can just kind of go subterranean uh, in you. Recognize that and take that to the Lord. So, and and I would say, secondly, don't dwell on it. So you're going to notice the sorts of things about this person that have 
either changed or maybe they were things that you didn't recognize before because you thought, well, I see these things, but I think they're they're the exceptions to this person's life, not the rule. And then you look you look at it later and you say, no, this seems to be a lot bigger, deeper of a pattern. Okay, well, dwell instead, for the most part, on what parts of this person did you benefit from? And, and you know, sometimes you're gonna say, no, this person was a total fraud. There's nothing that I learned from this person. But a lot of times you're going to say, no, this person is kind of like all of us, complex, multiple sorts of of um, people there represented. And I can I can give gratitude for the things that I benefited from, the things that I learned, maybe the uh, the, the kindnesses I found there, the teaching there, without saying, I'm going to accept everything that I received from this person. And I would say, as you do that, if the person does attack you, taking in mind what I just said about caring for your own soul in that. I would say largely don't defend yourself at all, at all. I think that uh, this is the general principle that Jesus is giving to us in the Sermon on the Mount uh, and in the pattern of his own life, the life that we've been called into, is when reviled, we don't respond with reviling. When slandered, we don't respond with slander. So in most cases, don't uh, don't defend yourself. I think the general pattern ought to be uh, the Apostle Paul to the church at Corinth when he says, it is a small thing to be judged by you or by any human court. And why? Because he knows he stands before the judgment seat of Christ. That should be the general sort of approach. Now, uh, there are going to be some exceptions to that. And again, they come back to, uh, you may have to defend yourself only in terms of the aspects where reasonable people might be confused by your ministry. And again, I come back to that reasonable people (laughs) sort of standard. Here's why. Generally speaking, the more ridiculous the charges are, the less they should be answered because they're self-refuting to people who have reason. You know, there was, I, I cite this all the time because it really made an impression on me. Several years ago, the Freakonomics guys uh, wrote uh, in one of their books about why these scam emails, uh, the, the Nigerian prince who's out of his country and is going to pay you back all the money as soon as he gets his inheritance from the royal family or whatever. Uh, often people look at those and say, why Why would anybody fall for this when everybody knows the jokes about the Nigerian prince email or whatever? And I thought that myself. But what, what they argued is, no, that's intentional because what's happening is these are people who don't want to waste time with people who are going to be wise to what it is that they're, that they're doing or become wise to what it is that they're doing. So they could have a more sophisticated sort of pitch, but they're going to be dealing with people who might, who might re- realize somewhere in the process after they've invested a lot of time. So what they want to do is to find a way where they can screen out immediately all but the most gullible people. And so they'll, they'll use tropes that they know are all out there in the cultural ecosystem, because if somebody doesn't 
uh, doesn't know to laugh at this when they receive it, then that's the sort of person that they want to take advantage of. Uh, I would say the same thing is is really to a large extent true here. You know, there was sometimes, I don't look at stuff uh, about me ever, but I know that there was something uh, going on around about George Soros uh, funding me at one point because I'm supportive of racial justice and immigrants and refugees and whatever. Well, uh, if George Soros ever wanted to pay me something, uh, I would take it as long as there were no strings attached and say, I'm going to go serve the Lord with this. And just like anybody else, <laughs> wouldn't go under employment for almost anybody. But somebody just wants to say, I don't know what to do with my money. I'll give it to you. Well, then I'll spend it the way the Lord would uh, want me to spend it. But that's never happened. I'm still waiting on that check. And I laugh when that said, because I say, you know, it only takes two minutes of research to realize that this is a an old anti-Semitic trope about shadowy Jewish figures who are funding uh, everything. And because it's so laughable that George Soros would want to fund anyone like me. And you could do, again, two minutes of research to show you that, that that's not true. But, uh, but that's the point. It's, it's the sort of thing that, uh, the, the, the very nature of how ridiculous it is ought to say, I'm not going to invest time in dealing with that. Uh, so, you know, and, and, and that's largely the case, at least for me, except in a few cases. So, for instance, there was something going on one time uh, where I knew what was going on and I knew uh, just how awful and petty and wicked what was going on actually was. But I wasn't going to say anything about it because I think that Jesus tells us not to. Um, except my son came to me about this and said, Dad, have you had a moral failure? And I was angry. And I tell you, I still am angry. Because, largely because the very people who were saying these things were committing moral failures while they were doing what they were doing, saying what they were saying uh, and had been. And so I was angry about that and I decided no, but I do care about what my son thinks. I do want my son to know exactly what's going on. So I actually brought him with me to, to listen to some of the things that were, were being said. So he walked out of that and said, dad, that's stupid. And I said, I know. And he said, why do you care what those people think? Uh, you know, so that was, that was not a defending of myself, but it was, I do care about his view of me, not as a minister of the gospel, but as a dad. <laughs> so you may have situations like that uh, in your life, uh, but that ought to be really rare. Too much defending of yourself is going to be a sign that you don't really understand and believe in the, in the ultimate judgment seat. So when Jesus says, you're going to face uh, reviling, and, and notice the way that Jesus says this, you're going to be brought before kings and before the synagogue. So you sort of have this big uh, picture of danger that did indeed happen to the church. You also have this small sort of... Uh, familial kind of rejection. And what Jesus says is, don't worry about what they say uh, and, and don't worry about what you're going to say. 
He says, the Spirit will give you what to say in the moment. But then he says, uh, nothing that is hidden in darkness. There is nothing that is hidden in darkness that will not be brought to light. And there's nothing that will be whispered in the corners that will not be shouted from the rooftops. Now, why is that said? It's said so that you know you don't have to retaliate. You don't have to answer everything that is said against you. You don't have to do all of those things. Um, And so that ought to give you a certain amount of freedom. And with it, a sense of, there's going to be a sense of when that happens, you're going to think, well, how dare you? I mean, how dare you? I've been in those situations where you say, how dare you do this when I have done all of these things for you, you know? But then you step back and you say, you know what? Why do I think that I ought to be exempted from something that every single person in the history of the people of God, including Jesus himself, especially Jesus himself, have experienced. They have experienced that. So so I think step away from that and then learn from it and say, okay, well, why did this happen in the life of this person? So you think about the person that, you, uh, that, that you're worried about here. And rather than just sitting there and saying, can you believe what this person is doing? Say, how did this happen? insofar as you can know. Because sometimes you're going to see that behind people's personas, there's something else that's going on. So for instance, there might be somebody who has a reputation for strong conviction and for standing for truth and and whatever. And then behind it is a lot of fear and risk aversion. And sometimes that risk aversion is what leads people to become hacks including sort of combative hacks online. Um, So when you see that, then you can see it when it starts to happen in your own life so that you can say, ah, I see where that leads and I see where that's going. So you can learn from it. Um, And also I would say, don't assume that people are going to stay the way that they are right now. Now, sadly, as people get older, they tend to get set in terms of the way that they act, but not always. There's any number of crises that can come into somebody's life that can change a sense of priorities. The spirit can work in all sorts of ways. So that's that's entirely possible. And it's certainly the case that when I look back and I see the big regrets, the two big regrets that I see in my life sound as though they're contradictory. Uh, Because the first one is, I regret that I did not see certain things Things, certain movements and ministries and people that I should have recognized for what they were uh, long before, and I shouldn't have even implicitly affirmed those things. And there were times when my intuitions would say, this person seems crazy to me, or this, this fad or this movement seems crazy to me, but I must just be, must just be me. And so that's one regret. But the other is I regret giving up on people too soon. So there are people in my life, I can think of numerous occasions where uh, somebody has gotten into a certain pattern or somebody's been doing things and I just uh, I, I just say, I give up on those people. And, and in, in at least one case, really, really harshly in terms of the way that I verbalized it to that person. 
And I look back at that and say, I was wrong. I shouldn't have given up on that person. I should have, I didn't know how to help that person in that moment, but I really could have if I had had a different imagination and I had just sort of relaxed and, and realized what the person's going through at the moment and that they're going to be okay uh, through this. You know, I regret that. And it's hard sometimes to tell the difference. It really is. But I think in this case, uh, recognize that repentance happens. And I'm not just talking about repentance in terms of confessing sin, but also in terms of changing a mind and changing direction. That, that happens. That can happen with you. That can happen even with this person that you're talking about. So I would say, for the most part, carry out your ministry. Learn from it. Don't defend yourself. See what God does. Do you have a question? Send it to questions at russellmore.com and I'll try my best to answer it. Thanks for listening to this episode. If you haven't yet, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Pocket Cast, or wherever you listen. And if you're listening on a smartphone, tap or swipe the cover art and you'll find the show notes, including some details you might have missed. This is Russell Moore, Onward. This episode was brought to you in part by Wheaton College's M.A. in Humanitarian and Disaster Leadership, which prepares Christian professionals to serve others faithfully and excellently. Called to help people facing disasters, human trafficking, poverty, or displacement as refugees? Visit wheaton.edu hdl.